I am J.A. Lovelock, a barrister, an author, but most importantly, a crime junkie. Welcome to my podcast, Behind the Yellow Tape. In this episode of Behind the Yellow Tape, I check out the case of Elizabeth Jeffries, this somewhat Delilah, or was she? At 4 a.m. on Saturday, the 28th of March, 1752, Elizabeth Jeffries was sitting at the back of her horse and cart, which was traveling from her home in Chelmsford, taking her to Epping Forest in Essex. Placed neatly beside her on the 23-mile journey was her coffin. The road to Epping was lined with people who had gathered to watch this grim procession. The crowd booed and jeered at the woman who many felt should be burnt at the stake. Elizabeth Jeffreys was on her way to be hanged. At a clearing in a forest, a crowd of over 7,000 people gathered to see what was the day's entertainment. Back then in 1752, going to see a hanging was like going to a football or baseball game or indeed any sporting event. Notwithstanding that, let's have a look at the events that brought Elizabeth Jeffreys to the hangman's attention. This is where it all began. In 1732, Thomas Jeffreys, a Shropshire builder, handed over his little baby daughter Elizabeth to his brother Joseph Jeffreys. Joseph Jeffreys was a wealthy butcher from Walthamstow, then in Essex, but now forms part of London. He and his wife were childless, and he could clearly give his niece a far more prosperous life than Thomas Jeffreys, the builder, ever could. The adoption went very well. Elizabeth Jeffreys was a sweet little girl who attended to her studies, which made her literate and numerate. She could read, she could write, and she could do arithmetic. Unlike many young women of the 18th century, she had her three R's about her. So far, so good. But things were about to change. At the age of 13, Elizabeth's behavior took a turn for the worse. She became rude and loutish. She was disobedient and rumors began to fly that perhaps she was engaging in sexual activities. She also did a lot of drinking and gambling and it was said that she could drink any man under the table as well as beat them at cards. That's quite something for a teenager, isn't it? A teenage girl at that. Drink any man under the table. Hmm. And Elizabeth was not finished yet. She had more to do. When she was just 15, Elizabeth took herself off to London. Here she found herself in a tavern on Tower Hill. And here she propositioned a soldier and persuaded him to rent out a room where they could spend some time alone. 
When Elizabeth removed her clothes, the soldier was shocked by the filthy state of her underwear and the clear signs of sexual activity that stained her knickers. The young soldier excused himself and without hesitation told all his chums that they were best avoiding this shamefully and dirty girl. A time came when Joseph, Jeffrey's wife, died, after which Elizabeth was made principal heiress to the Jeffrey's fortune. Then it was £1,000, but in today's money, about £100,000 or more. Not bad for a young girl who arrived penniless. In addition, Elizabeth would receive a house in London and one in Walthamstow. This is getting better. Joseph Jeffrey's idea in doing all this for Elizabeth was to curb her excesses and perhaps bring her into line, bring her back to the sweet girl he had known and raised for the past 15 years. But no amount of money or house could quench Elizabeth's craving for life on the wild side. She refused to settle down into a life of domesticity. She cared nothing for well-made beds and home-cooked meals. No, she much preferred to carry on her life of wild partying. And by 1748, Elizabeth had given up all housework. So much so, Joseph Jeffries was forced to hire domestic servants. Taken on was a Sarah Armstrong. She was employed to be a maid and take care of the house. Meanwhile, a John Swan was also taken on to be Joseph's manservant. Within days of his arrival, Elizabeth was sharing a bed with John Swan. Fast work. When Joseph Jeffries discovered the affair, he was furious, furious with Elizabeth that he had placed all the blame of this indecent and filthy behavior on her. Not only did he place all the blame at her door, but he also told her that if she continued with this affair with John Swan, he, Joseph Jeffries, would cut her out of his will. Idle threat? Well, idle or not, this threat did not bode well for Joseph Jeffries, because not long after he threatened to disinherit Elizabeth, Elizabeth and John Swan sought to have him killed and disposed thereof. With murder in mind, they approached one of Joseph Jeffries' workers, a gardener named Matthews, to do the job. Don't gardeners have first names? Anyway, would Gardner Matthews say yes to the job for 100 pounds? When it comes to the business of murder for hire, Gardner Matthews was no fool. He called a meeting with Elizabeth and John Swan. They were to meet in the potting shed, and this they did. And they began to haggle over the price for Joseph Jeffries' life. For the job, Matthews demanded 700 pounds. At first, Swan would not agree to that huge sum, but his mind was soon changed. 
when Elizabeth declared that her uncle Joseph must die at all costs. With that said, Joseph Jeffrey's fate was sealed. So the plan was put in action. In the month of May of 1751, manservant John Swan and Gardner Matthews met at the Bell Inn, a pub situated at London's Petticoat Lane. They had a murder to discuss, like which weapon would be most suitable. The idea of a thick stick came up, but was thrown out in favour of a pistol. A better option, they reasoned among themselves. But the road to murder was not as clear-cut as they had imagined. Whilst in the Bell Inn, John Swan and Gardner Matthews was overheard talking about thick sticks and pistols, which scared the life out of the locals who thought they had come in for a quiet pint. The taverners thought these guys were highwaymen out to rob them. The landlord of the Bell Inn detained Swan and Matthews and called for the local constable. When Elizabeth heard of this, she came to the rescue. If she had not taken a carriage at four o'clock in the morning from her uncle's house to go and retrieve Swan and Matthews from the Bell Inn, they might have remained in police custody for some time. And who knows, perhaps the events that followed might not have taken place. Such close encounter with the constable at the Bell Inn cost Matthews his nerves. He decided that this hair-brained venture was not for him. And with that, he walked away, very wise. But that did nothing to stop the pursuit of murder, the murder of Joseph Jeffries. And it finally happened on Saturday, the 3rd of July, 1751. In the village of Walthamstow at two o'clock in the morning, shots could be heard far and wide. Five minutes after two o'clock, Elizabeth could be seen hanging out of her bedroom window, wearing nothing but her underwear, shouting that there had been a murder. Her neighbors ran to the house where John Swan answered the door and informed the concerned villagers that there had been a break-in and a robbery. And during the robbery, Joseph Jeffries had been murdered. How conveniently. And according to John Swan, the murderer hadn't stopped there. No, he had also threatened to set the house on fire. Oh, what a calamity. So Joseph Jeffries, as planned, is now dead. As dead as he could be. He was found lying prostrate on his bedroom floor. He had been shot twice in the head. But before he was dispatched into the world beyond, he was able to hold Elizabeth's hand and give it a gentle squeeze. Clearly, Joseph Jeffries had no idea that the hand he so gently squeezed was the hand that pulled the trigger, so to speak, on his life. 
When the local constable arrived and discovered that a number of items were missing, including a candelabra and some silver cutlery, he quickly agreed with John Swan's account of there being a robbery which resulted in Joseph Jeffrey's death. The constable asked Elizabeth if she had any idea as to who might have been responsible for her uncle's murder. Well, she certainly had a name in mind because she immediately gave up Gardner Matthews. A mistake, surely. Upon hearing of the shooting, though, Gardner Matthews, him being nobody's fool, was right in thinking he might be fingered as the trigger man, and so he made a run for it. He did not get far because the group was gathered, a search arranged, and before long, Gardner Matthews was apprehended. He confessed everything. He told how Elizabeth and John Swan had tried to persuade him to do their dirty work and kill Joseph Jeffries. But Gardner Matthews did not want to kill his employer. He didn't have the heart to do it. But when he found out that Elizabeth and John Swan had gone ahead with the murder plan anyway, he realized that they would probably pin the blame on him. And he was quite right about that. That is why he took off running. Gardner Matthews, as it turned out, was a man to be believed. Lucky for him. He spilled the beans on the murderous couple. And as a result, Elizabeth Jeffries and John Swan were arrested and charged with the murder of Joseph Jeffries. The trial was very long. It lasted four days, from Tuesday the 10th of March to Saturday the 14th of March. That's a long time for a trial in 1752. So John Swan was charged with being the killer of Joseph Jeffries, and Elizabeth Jeffries was accused of inciting John Swan to kill his master. The prosecution painted Elizabeth as a horrid Delilah, a wicked woman who murdered the uncle who through his good-heartedness had taken her in and given her a life she would otherwise not have had had she stayed with her boat-builder father. Elizabeth Jeffries was viewed as monstrous. Here was this monster using her sexual charm as a weapon and shamelessly seducing John Swan and turning him against his master, Joseph Jeffries. Notwithstanding, the defense put their case that Joseph Jeffries, yes, this generous do-gooder and upstanding pillar of the community, had been sexually assaulting Elizabeth from an early age and that her wild behavior had been a cry for help. She'd even become pregnant by him twice. One pregnancy ended in a miscarriage and the other by illegal abortion. And in Elizabeth's mind, her young mind, she felt that the only way she could end the abuse was to have Joseph Jeffries out of her life, even if that meant having him killed. Did such a defense wash with the jury? Did they take any of that into account? Afraid not. This was the 18th century. Back then, there was little room for clemency and mercy in the criminal justice system. 
At the end of the court proceedings, the judge placed a black cap on his head. John Swan and Elizabeth Jeffries were found guilty of murder and were sentenced to death. And so it was that on that early Saturday morning, the 28th of March, 1752, Elizabeth Jeffries made her final journey to a clearing in Epping Forest and climbed the 13 steps to the hangman's gallows. Was justice served? You decide. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for more fascinating and interesting matters that go on behind the yellow tape. Till then, you can keep in touch by emailing info at btytpodcast.com. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.